Hello, hello. Welcome to the In God She Trust podcast with your host, Kitra Cooper. It is almost Christmas and it's sunny outside and I hope you guys had a good week and I hope um, that you, you know, kind of got caught up on, you know, the the updates and everything that was in the last episode. So if you haven't, go back and listen to that. You can come back here and chill. And if you don't go back and listen to it, eh, it's fine, whatever. You can do whatever you want. I just wanted to um, just say thank you for your guys' support and for listening. Um, it's just kind of crazy to see our, um, my, my you know, like my listeners kind of grow each week and kind of see where people listen from out the world and, it's shocking to me that people not in my own country want to listen to me, but um, other people in other countries are listening, you know, from like Africa and Iran and um, like England and all that stuff. So hello to everybody, both foreign and domestic. And I would just like to say thank you for listening. And um, I hope that I'm um, listening to the Holy Spirit and that he's feeding your soul in some way. And uh, I also would like to ask, you know, rate, review, subscribe, share all the fun things. Um, anytime something st- stands out to you and that you feel that someone else needs it, go ahead and just, you know, share it with people because uh, we're supposed to share the gospel with everybody. And if you felt something in your soul and you want to, you know, share it to somebody else, go for it. But yeah, rate, review. You can find us on all the social media platforms, all the things. So, all right. Well, um, this week I was really, really stuck on what the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about. And I kept praying and I kept asking and I was like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I just wasn't getting anything. And once again, I was on a walk with my dog and the Holy Spirit brought up um, a message that I shared almost a year ago to date. Okay. It'd be 11 months to date. So today's the 22nd. I think, uh, when this comes out, it'll be the 22nd of December. I shared this on the 22nd of January of this year. And he was like, this, this is what you need to share. And I find it really ironic that this is what he wants me to share because this was the same message that I shared stepping into my my very first time ever giving a message in front of an audience, in front of people. And it was um, really scary at first, but then as I started speaking, the Holy Spirit kind of calmed my nerves and all of that stuff. But it was right when I was just figuring out he wanted me in ministry. And I don't find it ironic, or sorry, I do find it, no, I don't know. What do I find it? I find it non-coincidental. I don't know, whatever, (laughs) that he wants me to share this now, you know, now that, you know, especially after last episode, I said, I'm stepping out in faith. I'm stepping out of the boat. I'm going towards Jesus, whatever he wants me to, you know, kind of on a solo journey. And so he wanted me to share this. And as soon as he brought it to my memory, I just got a peace in my soul about it. And this is 
my testimony, and this is all of the nitty gritty details of my past life and everything in it. And so this is a very uh, special story to me, special testimony to me. Uh, It makes me emotional every single time I tell it because it just, for me, constantly reminds me of where the Lord has brought me from. And it's just, you know, it's filled with pain and it's filled with regret, but, and it used to be filled with shame and it is no longer filled with shame because of the Holy Spirit. So, (sighs) all right. I had to take a deep breath before I started. All right. So, um, when I, every year with the, in God, she trusts, um, I'm going to pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the Lord for guidance and I want him to give me a word that my year is going to revolve around. And this past year, our word of the year was and has been salty. And it's based on that we are the salt of the earth. And to go out there and be bold and to to have flavor and to preserve and to heal because that's all the things that salt does, right? It it heals wounds. It preserves food. um, And it, it adds flavor to things. And that's kind of what the Holy Spirit led us forward into for the ministry. Um, and I just remember thinking, okay, salty, cool, but I have a, like, I am more of a sweet tooth kind of person, you know, I'm more of a sweet tooth and, um, it tastes better than salt. Honestly, sugar tastes better than salt to me. Like if you just like dip your finger in it and eat it, sugar tastes a lot better. And I'm sure I can't be the only one that has like a massive sweet tooth. Um, I don't know how many people would choose like broccoli instead of a brownie. I know if like someone gave me a plate of a brownie or broccoli, I'd definitely choose the brownie, right? Um, And if you said broccoli, please let me know what you're doing with your life in order to be so amazing because um, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to know your secret. Or let me know if you're just lying to yourself. That could be possibly it either way. But, you know, anyways, but I have such a bad sweet tooth and um, I'm pretty sure I could have kept my dentist as a kid in business with just me alone because of how much sugar I ate. And um, I remember as a kid, my sweet tooth was so bad that I would go into the pantry whenever my parents weren't looking and I would I would take um, the maple syrup bottle and I would just chug it. I know. I'm dedicated. Okay. I'm very dedicated. I mean, go hard or go home. You know what I mean? So anyway, so that was, you know, that's like a little insight to how much I loved sugar. Um, But, you know, the more and more that I had let my addiction to sugar kind of take over um, towards, you know, when I hit like 21 20, somewhere around there, um, I really started gaining a lot of weight. And it was because of how much sugar that I ate in my body and I wasn't working out and I wasn't picking, you know, I wasn't choosing the broccoli over the brownie, right? And I went to the doctor and they like pulled some some blood samples and they're like, you're pre-diabetic. And if you don't get this under control, you're going to have diabetes and you're going to have heart problems. And 
I read that the number one leading cause of death in the world is heart disease. And one of the leading causes for the heart disease, if you look at it, it's very, very like basic form is an overabundance of sugar in the diet. And, um, some have even argued that sugar works similarly to what drugs do to the brain. I said similarly, not exactly. I mean, if you told a cocaine addict, yeah, sugar and cocaine are the exact same in the brain, they'd probably laugh at you. But it does light up the brain in a very similar way when, when we eat sugar, the brain just lights up like fireworks. Um, and so some leading experts have argued that um, sugar and drugs have almost exactly the exact amount. Um, the, it does the same thing to the brain or not. Um, and so I was just kind of thinking, I was like, okay, how can something that tastes so good? I mean, in everything, it seems like in America is based around food, but like, if you look at the labels, sugar is in everything. So how can something that tastes so good be so bad? Because a lot of times we think, oh, well, it makes me feel good. It tastes good. It must be good, but it's not always the case, right? And it's because we don't necessarily think of the consequences in the here and now. And that's why I always say, I hate the, 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 what is it? The saying that says, uh, just do what makes you happy. And it's because the pleasure it brings in the moment overshadows our judgment for future consequences. The pleasure it brings in the moment overshadows our judgment for future consequences. And I'm sure you guys have probably heard the term sugarcoating, right? It's when you have to say something hard that has, but it's wrapped in sugar so it's easier to take or, you know, it won't make you seem like such a jerk, right? You, so you sugarcoat everything. And I used to be a master sugarcoater, once again, because I'm a people pleaser and I do things like that, right? So I used to sugarcoat everything. Someone would ask me my opinion or how I felt on something and I would just, coat it in sugar. And I really wouldn't actually be honest because what sugar coating does is it always lessens the truth, which is why on this podcast, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. I'm just going to tell you straight. I'm going to tell you how I feel. I'm going to be honest. And I will say though, that it does not mean that I'm just going to be brutally honest. I do not believe in being brutally honest because I think if someone's like, oh, I'm just brutally honest. No, you just wanted to be a jerk and be like, oh, well, I was just being honest. You asked me for my honesty. So I just told you, no, there is a, there is a way that we can deliver the truth, deliver it honestly, but take out the brutality of it, right? Jesus was honest, but he was never brutal about it. So work on, you know, if you're just, if you find yourself saying, I'm just a brutally honest person, work on the brutality of it keep the honesty, but work on that brutality, right? Because I'm pretty sure it's just an opportunity for people to be mean, right? And that's just not what I'm about. Um, and so, like I said, we're just not going to sugarcoat anything. And when I did sugarcoat things, um, I just wasn't being honest. And I've mentioned before that I used to go to therapy And my therapist, Mark, he told me something that just stuck with me. He said, love without truth is empty and truth without love is cruel. I'm going to say that one more time for the people in the back. Love without truth 
is empty. And truth without love is cruel. Pretty much what I just said about the brutal honesty thing, right? And that's so true. Love without truth is empty. I can think of at least three relationships that I have had with just friends or romantic where um, there was no truth. So that friendship or that romantic relationship was just kind of empty because I was so afraid to speak my feelings or I was afraid to be honest or vice versa. So love without truth is empty and truth without love is cruel. So sugarcoating only hides the truth. And I was trying to think of a really good example of somebody who is just really, really good at sugarcoating things or, you know, kind of twisting things. And like every person I came up with, I was like, that's a little too controversial. That's a little too one-sided. And then the Holy Spirit was like, dude, are you serious? Like, like think a little harder, bro. Um, and he was like, Satan, Satan is the world's best sugar coater there possibly is. So what does it look like? I mean, everyone's like, oh no, he's the father of lies and he's just evil. He's cunning. And scripture even says that the serpent is cunning. He's very, very smart. So what one thing Satan will do is that he'll use your weaknesses. He'll coat it all in sugar to keep you in the moment so that you don't see your purpose and your value in Christ Jesus, which is exactly what he's after. He will take not just your weaknesses, but he'll entice you with the things of the world and it'll be coated in sugar and it'll look amazing. And it'll taste really, really good for a little bit. But then you'll need more and you'll need more. And you'll eat more and more and more of the things of the world or the things of your temptations or the things that Satan has to offer you. And it will still never satisfy. It will still never be enough. But he uses a big, like I said, a big part of it is your weaknesses. And I'm going to prove it to you with Bible. Okay. So if you have your Bible with you, or if you don't, that's fine. I'm going to tell you where we're going to go. We're going to Genesis 3. And we're going to read verses one through seven. And I'm lead, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible um, translation, and it says, "Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals." See, I told you the scripture says that he was cunning. So, anyways, um, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden?" The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So we're going to stop there. Satan coated his words of sugar to Eve. He said, oh, it'll give you wisdom. It'll make you like God. You'll, You'll be just like God, which is true. 
Oh, don't log off yet. Let me explain further. He's He was right, though. Kind of. Satan is also known as the deceiver and as a tempter, but in order to have deception, there has to be some truth present. So when he told Eve that her eyes would be opened and she would gain knowledge, he was correct in that. But the deception came from her eyes would be opened to evil and shame, which is the only way that we would have been like God because God knew the difference between good and evil, obviously because he saw it coming. But Eve didn't. And so that was the only way we would have been, or she would have been like God, is knowing the difference between good and evil. So when he told Eve that her eyes would be opened and she would gain knowledge, he was correct in that. But instead of it being like God, what it did was it caused separation. The very first thing that Adam and Eve did was they realized they were naked. Shame immediately came upon them. They sewed fig leaves together, and then the very first thing they did was they hid from God. It immediately caused that separation between man and God. But see, Eve's weakness in this moment was pride. She wanted to know things. She wanted all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge. She, she liked the idea of being like God. And I don't want to say being God, but she saw that it was enticing. Oh, well, I could be like God. I, I mean, that sounds, I mean, people constantly are going after fame, money, and power. There's something in power, Right. Um, you, if you have a lot of power, you can control a lot of people. Look at the governments around the world. They have so much power and they can control their people very easily. Um, hopefully they just do it in a non crazy way. Right. (laughs) So anyways, but it caused separation and, Literally right after, in verse 8, the, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out and said to him, where are you? And I always wondered, oh my, okay, God, you totally knew what happened. You knew where they were. So why did you ask, where are you? And he said, because I wanted them to give their shame to me. He never once wanted to have this separation between himself and his creation. We were always meant to be bonded with God. Always. And so he knew what they chose. He knew that they were hidden. He knew exactly where they were hiding, but he still called out to them regardless of what they did. He still called for them. Where are you? And you know, then Adam was like, Oh, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And then he asked, 
Who told you that you were naked? Which is interesting because no one did. Their eyes were just open and immediately the shame was there. So it just kind of shows that regardless of what we do, God is still always asking, where are you? Where are you? Now we're going to just really fast hop over to John 13, 2. So we're going to go into the New Testament a little bit. John 13, 2. <clears throat> Actually, let's, let's back up to verse 1. It says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And this happens right before Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Like literally right before. And so in this moment, Satan is tempting Judas to betray Jesus. He's enticing him, pulling him in. And then I just find it funny how, once again, God knows everything, so he knew what was going on, but he still washed Judas's feet. He still showed that he was a servant, even of the same people who would betray and deny him. But then if we skip down to John 13, 27... This is after Judas ate the pieces of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, doing quickly. So after all of this, Judas still chose to betray Jesus. And as soon as he made his choice, Satan entered his body, which is super creepy. It states in John 12, 6 that Judas was a thief and was put in charge of the group's money bag, and he would steal from the money bag. Satan knew that Judas's weakness was money, and he used it against him in order to do his bidding, in order to do his work. Once again, Satan is the tempter, as we see here. But he does not force you to sin, though. A lot of people like to blame everything on Satan, like, oh, Satan did it, or Satan forced me to do it, or Satan, no, fam. You can still choose. You still have a choice. Not everything is Satan. Now, he can 1,000% heavily entice us, tempt us, and influence our choices. He can lay everything out there on the table and make it look so delicious, so amazing, so coated in sugar, but you ultimately still have the choice to choose whether you eat from it or not. There has to be some accountability, right? And I've been in situations where it feels like the temptation is so overbearing that I have no choice, but I do. And in, in, a lot of the times where I have given into that temptation and I have given into those choices, it feels so good in the moment. But then afterwards, after whatever I chose to do was done, I immediately felt shame, which is exactly what Satan did to Eve. In the moment, 
I mean, he enticed her with, oh, look how good this looks. She saw that, oh, yeah, it does look good. It smells good. It's obviously good fruit to eat. You know, and he, he made it probably very, very difficult for her to say no. But she still chose. And after she chose, um, and Adam chose as well, their eyes were immediately opened and shame came. So it might feel cool and good and amazing in the moment. But then if you feel shame after it, you know it was not the right choice. Or sometimes I've even literally been tempted and I'm like, "Mm, I know this is the wrong choice, but I'm going to do it anyways. I mean, I've done it. I've literally been like, I know God is telling me not to do this right now and not to give in, but I want to satisfy my flesh instead. And that's kind of, ultimately a hard lesson that I've had to learn is that I have to sacrifice my flesh because my flesh will always go against God. It will always push me into sin. It will always um, be hostile to God. What is that verse? I'm trying to think about it's in Romans. It's like our sinful nature will always be hostile to God. It's in Romans. Give me one second. I'm going to look it up. Okay. It's Romans 8, 7. That's what it is. Okay, so if you have your Bible, flip over, flip over there. If not, I'm going to read it to you. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So it literally says that the mindset of flesh is hostile to God. Actually, back in verse six, it says the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. And then it says it is unable to do so. It cannot submit to God's will and it cannot obey God's laws. It cannot submit to his direction. And so that's why it's so important that we sacrifice our flesh daily. I have to sacrifice my flesh daily. I cannot give in to my flesh desires because it is hostile to God. I'm getting off track here. (laughs) Sorry. But I mean, it's true. We are ultimately responsible for our actions. Satan only tries to pull our focus away from God, but we are still 100% responsible responsible for our actions and People in the church have got to stop blaming Satan for everything, and we have got to start actually owning up to things, not trying to keep them hidden, not trying to lie more in order to keep it hidden, because healing comes when we actually speak out what we're going through. Satan can heavily influence your choices, but we are responsible for them. We got to grow up. 
we got to look ourselves in the mirror and we got to make a choice if we're going to choose, if we're going to serve our flesh or if we're going to serve God. Um, Satan works hard to pull our focus away from God. That's his job. But so, I mean, why does Satan work so hard to pull our focus away from God? Even though the Bible says God already has the victory. I mean, what's the point? Satan wants to make us ineffective for the kingdom of God. Point blank period. If you're saved, he doesn't want you bringing other people to Christ. And he's been trying ever since the beginning with Adam and Eve. If you're a believer, he's going to do everything he can to keep you away from the truth of Jesus Christ, and he will use your weaknesses against yourself. If you're a believer in Christ, he's going to try to stop you from participating in the body of Christ so you won't bring others to Christ. If he can't steal your salvation, he will try to steal your participation. If he cannot steal your salvation, he will try to steal your participation. He wants you acting outside the will of God, outside God's laws. He doesn't want you to start your ministry. He doesn't want you to start your business. He doesn't want you to travel to a different country and start feeding the poor and start preaching the gospel because if you do that, you are depopulating hell. And he doesn't like that because Satan thinks that he was worthy enough to be on God's throne. And he wants to rule in God's place. And so he doesn't want God's house populated. He wants his own populated. And so that's why we have to really start putting in the work to sacrificing our flesh and stop being so lukewarm about Jesus. And I can say all of this because I was that person. I literally was that person. No one is safe from Satan's temptation. No one is safe from the schemes of the enemy. Um, like I said, I lived the, the life where um, I was a Christian, but I was so not participating. I was lukewarm. I was not sacrificing my flesh and I was living the way I wanted to live because it felt better in the moment. And, um, Satan rendered me completely use, useless for God for almost 12 years. And I've gone back and forth, um, many times of telling my story because I, I used to be afraid of the ridicule and I think there's still a little bit of shame involved, but, um, God has given me a sense of urgency and boldness and to speak on these certain things. And, you know, God was like, you have to tell your story because if you masquerade yourself as you've always been the perfect Christian, you're, it's not going to work. It's going to fall on deaf ears. And my story also just shows God's goodness and glory. But I grew up in church all my life. As a young child, I recognized, you know, very early on that Christ died on the cross in my place so I could have eternal life in him and be washed white by his blood. So I claimed Jesus, my savior. And I really liked the scripture, John 1, 12, because it says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
I was a child of God. And I was bold when I was a kid. You know what? Everyone always talks about that childlike faith. I mean, I had energy for the Lord as a young child. And I would talk to everyone about Jesus. I um, I once went up to a neighbor and I asked her, she was on her, she was on her porch and she was smoking a cigarette. And I go up and I ask her, do you know Jesus? She's like, no, I don't. <laughs> and so I, I, I looked at her, I would think I was like four or five at the time. And I was like, well, you need to, and you need to quit smoking. <laughs> so yeah, what's what's funny is she no longer smokes, and I think she's married to a pastor now, so <laughs> I don't know. I can't necessarily say my four-year-old self had anything to do with that, but I don't know. Maybe I planted a seed. Who knows? Um, as I got older, I, you know, and got into my teen years, I started to kind of fall into the things my other friends were doing. Um, I was homeschooled through junior high. I mean, I went to the junior high for like two classes, um, you know, just to kind of keep social a little bit, but I was homeschooled through junior high. And a lot of the stuff that I was taught at home was, you know, Christ centered and faith-based. And so when I got into high school, I just deeply wanted to fit in. And I was always known as like the Miss Goody Two Shoes all the time. And I absolutely hated it. I don't know why that being called Miss Goody Two-Shoes bugged me so much. Um, probably because it did not fit the narrative of the people that I was wanting to hang around, to be completely honest. And so I started getting into partying and um, getting into alcohol, uh, doing a little bit of weed, you know, stuff like that. And in going down this road, I thought that I could change people. Especially I thought that I could change um like the boys I wanted to date and the guys I wanted to date. And, um, yeah, I was kind of naive. I was like, oh, I can change them. I can bring them to Jesus. <laughs> and that's usually never how it works. If ever you think that you can like change somebody or save somebody, you can't save them and you can't change them. You can plant a seed, but they ultimately are 100% responsible for what they choose. Um, but I, I had a really, really awesome gift, if you can even call it a gift, of choosing the really bad boys, like the, like the, real, the real ones. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and um, it wasn't until actually I started going to therapy that I started realizing like my three main super serious relationships were all with alcoholics. And I mean, go big or go home, right? I'm totally kidding. Um, but what this did is just, this just caused disappointment after disappointment. And it eventually pushed me away from God because I thought God mustn't be real if you let me get so hurt by all of these men. Once again, because I was not, I was just too stupid to realize that I was the one making these choices. And I then blamed God for everything that I chose. And so I decided to kind of turn away from God and just kind of pushed him out. And uh, one year in my sophomore year of college, um, I was in another emotionally abusive and you know, verbally abusive relationship. And we had a, like a horrendous fight then. And um, my alcoholic boyfriend and I just, just really, really bad fight. And I was just 
super, super broken. And I prayed and I asked God to help me after, you know, years. I hadn't prayed to God in years. I hadn't sought him, any of that. And I was just kind of in my, in that broken moment, I prayed. And that was one of my very first tangible experiences with the Lord. I mean, as loud as I am talking to you is how I heard God. And I mean, I, it was probably two or three in the morning. I just shot up out of bed and I heard him. He said, leave him, go back home and come back, come back to me. And so I did just that. And I just felt like I was finally stepping toward an actual relationship with God. Even though I grew up in church all my life, I never got the relationship aspect of it. I got the behavioral uh, control aspect of just, oh, you just can't be a person who's, you know, curses or you can't do this. You know, it was behavior modification. That's how I took it as. But um, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so the next five years, um, I stayed single. It was a long season of singleness, but Jesus just showed me um, his everlasting love. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story um, because I was kind of sitting on the fence still with being fully in on my relationship with Jesus. And like any other broken person, and Satan also knows of my weaknesses, he decided to give it one more shot and use my weaknesses against me. And um, Satan knows that mine is my weakness is relationships. Mine is men. Um, or used to be men, but was at this time. Um, and, I, and so I met this guy. Um, in my head, he was the guy. Um, he was unlike any other man I had ever date, dated. Um, he was raised in a church and went to church. So I thought, oh my gosh, finally, a godly man. Um, we went to church together and I thought it was super cool. Um, but I did not sacrifice my flesh. And so sex was a normal occurrence between the two of us. And um, four months into our dating relationship, I found out I was pregnant. Um, the doctor had incorrectly placed my IUD birth control. Like it was nowhere near where it needed to be. Um, so even though the pregnancy was massively unplanned and a large surprise. I believe I was like 24 at this time. Um, I was really excited. I had always, I've always wanted to be a mom. Um, like since I was 17, I just, I knew I wanted to be married and I wanted to be a mom. Um, so we were both really excited and, but when we found it, it was like, Oh, it could be ectopic because with IUDs, it could be um, an ectopic pregnancy, which means that the pregnancy is in the tube, um, the fallopian tube and not in the, um, not in the uterus, which means that the baby would not have survived and I would have died. So, um, so the doctors were really, really worried about that, but you know, test after test was coming back that everything was looking good. And then finally the baby got big enough to where they could actually see it and it was implanted in the uterus and it was in the correct place. And so, um, we decided, Oh, we can maybe breathe a little, you know, sigh, sigh of relief. I did have to have the IUD surgically removed, which um, did, um, you know, put up the chances of miscarriage pretty high. Um, but, you know, 
one ultrasound appointment, we go in, we saw that the baby grew, it looked really, really good. But then the ultrasound tech was just nauseatingly quiet. And, uh, we got the dreaded words of no heartbeat. Um, the stress of the procedure to move my misplaced IUD, um, and just ultimately everything, um, was the cause of the miscarriage. And, um, during, uh, my miscarriage, I went, underwent, uh, severe trauma. Um, I had to go to the ER, um, a couple of times, um, uh, because I was hemorrhaging. I was just, just bleeding way too much. And, um, the, when I went to the ER, um, they said they were going to give me a pill and that it would help finish the miscarriage. And the nurse was like, this is not an abortion. You know, your baby has already passed away. It's just going to be a way of, um, helping your body get over this faster. So you don't have this horrendous bleeding constantly and you don't have to come back to the ER. Um, unfortunately that did not work. And so the next day, once again, I started hemorrhaging and I had to have an emergency surgery in order to, um, finalize the miscarriage for my own safety. Um, so I had the surgery after the surgery, I ended up with an infection, um, that lasted two years and I like the doctors couldn't understand why this like infection wouldn't go away um, because it's like routinely common after a DNC um, just because they, they go in there and they, you know, they invade your space and it just kind of makes your body mad. Um, so they weren't exactly sure why it was lasting so long, um, you know, and then I just I turned to God and I was just praying and I was asking why. I mean, I was super angry. I was really hurt. I couldn't understand anything. Um and eventually I just, um, was so overcome with grief that I just, you know, once again, just kind of pushed God out and I threw my, myself deeper into my relationship with my boyfriend instead of God. Um, this is, you know, at the time where I had mentioned in a, a few stories back that this is where I went to a medium, you know, to understand why I lost my son. Um, I, I mean, I was, I was so deep in grief and my boyfriend at the time and I had experienced that trauma bond. So ultimately what happened is over time, I didn't do it on purpose, but I started making him my idol and he started becoming my God. And I was asking God to show up and he did, but always it was not in the ways that I was expecting. Um, the infection I contracted from my surgery wouldn't go away despite every medicine procedure imaginable. Um, so I still continue to do my own thing. I moved in with my boyfriend. We bought a house together. Um, you know, we were still, you know, like I said, sex was a regular thing and, um, he would not propose though. <laughs> and, you know, we kept talking about marriage and we were talking about getting married and all of this stuff. And, I had a lot of guilt and shame on my soul because I knew God was telling me this is not how you're supposed to live. Like I, I could feel it. And, um, you know, we had, we dated, you know, two more years past, you know, our miscarriage in that entire time I was dealing with this infection and he, he wasn't proposing and I could feel that it was never going to come. And, but he was my idol and he was 
everything that I pretty much worshiped. And I was just, I was was just heartbroken all the time. And I was so, um, honestly depressed and I felt so much shame and guilt on me, um, because I, I knew God was calling me out of it. And one day I just asked, I was like, God, why are you punishing me? You know, why are you doing this to me? And I called my mom and I told her the same thing. I was like, God is punishing me. I just don't understand why he's doing this, yada, yada. I was just distraught. And I was, the, the longer I stayed in the relationship, the, the heavier my soul became. And um, I was just mad. And I, you know, once again, I, I am like a very, I can be a very sassy person. Um, so I told God, you know, you're just punishing me. It's just being cruel, whatever told my mom that. And then, um, I go, I go to go home and when I'm really, really upset, I don't want to listen to anything in my car. I just turned everything off. And, uh, once again, <laughs> the Holy spirit showed up in a way I was not expecting. I was driving and I hear this voice come through my speakers in my car and I look and I was like, maybe I hit a button and no, everything was still turned off. And I mean, it was loud. It was a booming voice in, in my car. And I like went to just turn down the the volume thinking that would magically do it, even though, you know, the sound and stuff was um, turned off. I heard one word and it's it was almost like someone grabbed my hand to stop me from turning the volume down. And the word was sin. And I started listening and Hebrews 12 was what was being spoken to me through my cars, speakers. Now, let me just give you a little bit of context. My phone was in my purse in the back seat. I'm, I'm just saying that my phone was in my purse in the back seat. There is no way my phone would have magically opened itself, gone to the Bible app, opened the Bible, go and choose Hebrews, scroll down and do 12. It's impossible for it to do it magically, quote unquote, on its own. And the entire chapter of Hebrews 12 is about discipline. And it says in Hebrews 12, Three. I'm just going to read what I heard. Okay. This is what I heard. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and give up. And struggling against sin, this is where it started making sense to me, where I heard it. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exert. exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves and he punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which we all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. 
Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure there isn't anyone immoral or or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. So that is what came over my car and it stopped. I hadn't gotten home yet and it just stopped after verse 19. And when the words, therefore strengthen your tired knees and make straight paths for your feet. So what is, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead my car was flooded with the presence of God. It, the, the, the presence was so thick in my car that it felt like my car would buckle under the weight. And I immediately just felt so tiny. And I just started to shake and to just cry uncontrollably because the presence of God is just so powerful. And that was what I needed. From that point on, I decided to follow Jesus fully. I moved out of my house. Um, I cut off sexual relations with my boyfriend. I said, we're not going to be sleeping together until we get married. Um, And my mom said, you're going to see if your relationship has legs within the next month. You know, now that, you know, sex was off the table, I wasn't living there. Um, We tried to make it work, but no joke. A month later, um, we were having a conversation. We weren't even having a conversation. We were fighting. I wanted to get married. I was kind of pushing it. We were looking at getting married in Jamaica and like I needed to, we needed to put a deposit down and all of this stuff. And, um, he said that God is not what he wanted and that he didn't want to get married anymore and he didn't know if he wanted kids anymore. And so after two and a half years and a miscarriage and everything, um, we called it quits. Um, he was telling, he was like, I'm going to tell you all this. I don't want God. I don't want to get married. I don't want kids. Um, we can, you know, he's like, I'm letting you know because I'm not going to compromise. So you're going to have to compromise. And, um, I was like, yeah, I can't do that. So it was a mutual, it was pretty mutual. It was good, but, um, it was really, really heartbreaking. Um, but as soon as I moved out and I left and I followed God, um, my infection was healed in three days and a little bit of context. It was to the point where the doctors were so worried about how, bad it had gotten that they're like, we've tried everything. You've been on antibiotics for six months. We don't know why this is either keeps flaring back up or just won't go away. But as soon as I repented and I turned back to Christ, it was gone in three 
days. Three days, y'all. And I told my friend who is a nurse and she told the doctor and they said that should be impossible. And so I received a miracle. And from that point on, um, God has blessed me with people and with things that I could never have imagined. Um, you know, when I, but here, I I also want to, you know, make this very clear. I still hurt a lot. I had dug myself into such a deep hole of, um, and it wasn't just like the, those relationships when it came to like my sexual sin. It was like all of the people that I had sexual relations with. And it was just 10 years of doing whatever I wanted to do and doing whatever made me happy and just living my own way. I had dug myself into such a dark hole um, that I had to choose to do the work to get out of it. When God finds you, he finds you where you're at, but he's, he never wants to keep you there. He doesn't want you to stay the same person that you were when he first found you. He wants to cleanse you of your sins. He wants to turn you into a different person. That is why I will say until I am blue in the face that Jesus is not a get out of hell free card. He is not a reason that we can just sin and be like, oh, Jesus will forgive me later because that's like crucifying him all over again. That makes what he did nothing to you. And I know that probably sounded harsh, but that's exactly what I did. So he is not a get out of hell free card or a I get to sin however I want free card. He found me where I was, but he did not leave me there and he was not going to leave me the same person but I was massively depressed and I had those soul ties that I had to break and I had that depression that I had to deal with. And I, I had been so overcome with grief that after I even left that relationship, I told this when, um, when we were with Sonia that I was so stricken with grief, I couldn't hear God's voice anymore. So I thought he abandoned me. And so I was just yelling at him like, you left me. And then that Psalm 56, eight, came to mind where he bottles every tear. And from then, from that moment, I was like, okay, I see him differently now. He's not another man that's going to emotionally abuse me. He's, he's going to actually heal me and he's going to love me back to life. Um, but I had to do the work. Um, he opened doors and he gave me people, um, to help me heal. And he gave me a therapist. And sometimes, um, we can talk about our trauma, Um, But we can't just be like, oh, but God, yeah, but God, but we also have to do the work. Sometimes you need therapy and theology. Sometimes you need counseling and you need the counselor. And my healing came massively through counseling with Mark and with Sonia, who I had on. But in following God, he has opened doors for me to use me as a vessel to do his work and for his glory. I used to live with so much shame about my, my past relationship relationships, you know, and, and my, my past sexual history. And there was a lot of shame attached to my miscarriage. Um, and there's a lot of pain attached 
to a miscarriage. And there are still times that I am sad that I would not be a mom. Um, my son would have been three this year. But God is merciful in so many ways because um, I look at where my life is now and I realized that God was not only giving me mercy, but he gave my son mercy as well. Because my son does not have to grow up in a broken home. Um, he does not have to grow up with a father who abuses alcohol. And he would not have to grow up with a mother who put her identity into men. Um, that would have just led him into so many bad avenues. So it, it was merciful. I still don't fully understand why. Um, but I know that the only love my son has ever known is the love of Jesus. When he first opened his eyes, that's who he saw. And if you've ever had a miscarriage, or if you've ever lost a child, they know more about the love of Jesus, and they know more about the Father, and about peace and joy and love than we will ever know in this lifetime. I had a pastor say that to me um, when I was in grief counseling after I lost my son, and that gave me so much peace, knowing that my son is clinging to the pinky of his, his creator. <sighs> Sorry, I'm trying to collect myself a little bit. So I'm, I'm no longer ashamed of my past or of my miscarriage because it is just written with God's goodness all over it. He took my broken pieces and he put me back together. I've said this so many times, but he loved me back to life. Once again, he has reminded me that he died in my place so that when God looks at me, all he sees is Jesus washed completely white through the death of Christ. Healing comes in many different forms. But I still have, you know, I mean, I, I know that God has more planned for me. But I can firmly stay, say that when you step into full obedience with God and that you sacrifice your flesh and that you 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 crucify your flesh daily, it it is worth every single bit. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have the redemption of his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. But like in my last relationship, Satan kept coating it in sugar to keep me from God. Telling me, if you leave, losing your son would be in vain. It'd be time wasted. 
and this is everything you've ever wanted. You're so close to having everything you ever wanted, a husband, a family, you know, all of that stuff. You're so close to having it. So why give up now? And it kept me in a cycle of disobedience and out of God's grace for a long time. When the body craves sugar, it doesn't actually mean it wants sugar. When you crave sugar, your body is actually telling you that it needs more protein. And I am a fitness coach, so you can look this up. It's true. When you crave sugar, your body needs protein. You need meat, something more to sustain you. Sugar tricks your brain into thinking that you got what you needed, but it does. It did not have um, enough substance to it. The sugar craving makes you think you need sugar. So instead of feeding your body sustainable sources, it gives you cheap energy that never lasts. Such are the temptations and the distractions of sin on our body. When temptation and deception comes, instead of running to your past sinful desires or running to what your flesh wants or, or, or you dying to your flesh instead of you know your flesh dying to Christ, we need to run to Jesus because he is the meat that we need. He is the protein that our body craves. He is the thing that will sustain us because when we have Jesus and we actually fill our souls with Jesus, those sugar cravings start to fade. Now, don't get me wrong. I still have to sacrifice my flesh every day. I, I'm, I'm trying to be bold. Like, like yeah, I'm not having sex until marriage, but that does not mean that my body still does not crave it at times. And I have got to sacrifice my flesh. I get on my knees and I pray. I pray in the spirit. I pray to Jesus. And Jesus wins every time. Because I'm sacrificing my, my desire. I mean, and that's a, that's a regular need. I mean, God created sex. And he made it good, but he made it within the confines and the boundaries that he set it in because of like my exact story. Because when it's outside of the bounds of marriage, it gets really messy. It gets really gross. It's just, it's, it's not pretty. So I'm like, okay, I won't, I don't get this now, but when I get married, this will be satisfied. It's a real need. It's a real desire, but I'm not going to do it in the way Satan wants me to do it. I'm going to do it the way Jesus wants me to do it. And that's just not with like sex or, you know, all of that stuff. It's with like everything. Yeah. Satan would love for me to go down this path, but God says, this is the path. Matthew seven fourteen says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only if you find it. Wide is the gate of the world and of Satan, but narrow is the path of life, which is Jesus, and very few find, find it. So give your body Jesus to chew on and not the sugar coating of Satan. And like I had mentioned this year, our word was salt. So when the body craves salt, the body is actually telling you that it's thirsty for water. And Jesus is the living water that we need. John 4, 14 uh, is speaking to the woman at the well. And it says, but whoever drinks from the water I give them will never be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water I, oh, sorry, whoever drinks the water from the well 
will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. John 7, 37 through 38 says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. God brings salt to make you thirsty for him. And just like salt, Jesus offers healing. Psalm 147.3 says he heals the broken hearted and bandages their wounds. And just like salt, Jesus preserves. Psalm 121, 7 through 8 says, The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And Jesus brings life. And I'm, and I'm not just meaning life like your beating heart life. We're talking eternal life, salvation, because this time on earth is but a breath. It's a vapor. It's very, very short, you know, compared to all eternity. John 10, 10 and 28 says the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Everyone listening has experienced pain, disappointment, hurt, or even spiritual warfare at some point in your life. But your pain has a purpose, y'all. Your pain has a purpose. Pain has a way to either dig, dig your face in the dirt and put you in your grave or to the feet of Jesus. Choose Jesus. Don't choose the grave. He takes your pain and turns it into victory. If you're going through hurt, pain, spiritual warfare. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Only through Jesus will we have true life. Only through Jesus will we have true peace. Only through Jesus will we have true joy. If you haven't made that decision to have him be your Lord and Savior and you want to, all it says all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Choose Jesus. I chose the world. I chose what Satan had to offer. And it's never as good as God. Everything Satan and this world could offer you, if you made it into one huge pile, it still does not compare to even one of God's blessings. It does not compare to one of God's promises. God offers actual substance. He took this broken mess that's talking to you now and he made me whole and new. So don't go for the sugar. Quench your thirst with Jesus.
quench your thirst with Jesus because he is everything you need. So that is my story. I just, I love you guys. And I want to speak the truth because a lot of times, a lot of people think, oh, I love this person, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm just not going to tell them. It doesn't matter your past. Jesus forgives you. Uh, you just have to ask him for forgiveness and repent, repent and believe. That's honestly what it comes down to. Just repent and believe. If you guys have any questions or you want to reach out, um, you can find me on uh, Ingashi Trusts on Facebook and on Instagram and on TikTok. And you can also send me a Gmail, igstrusts at gmail.com. And I just hope you guys have a blessed Christmas. Spend time with your family. Just praise Jesus for his first coming and eagerly await his second coming. Just make sure you reflect this Christmas on the gift that Jesus is and the gift that God gave us in eternal life. I love you guys, and I will be seeing you next week. Bye-bye.